All right, well, good morning, church. My name is Ryan Vinzant, and I am excited to share with you this morning as we continue on our series through the Kings and the Prophets. If you don't know who I am, I work with our student ministry, and one of the things I love about that stage of life is that students are starting to ask a lot of really big questions, right? Like normally it's somewhere around seventh, eighth, or ninth grade. They begin asking these questions, figuring things out about themselves, asking things like, man, what am I actually passionate about? What am I good at? And because uh, they've been around church, they might throw into the mix another question, like what is God's call for my life? And you know, I think back when I was uh, their age, probably around 12 years old, and I remember that year I had started really digging into God's word for the first time. And one night as I was reading in bed, uh, I experienced something. And the best way that I can explain it is sort of like the game Kerplunk. If you don't know what Kerplunk is, it's like a little plastic tower and it has these marbles in it and then these red straws sticking out. And you and like your buddies, you take turns pulling out a straw and you're trying not to let any of the marbles fall on your turn, all right? And it was in that moment as I'm laying there reading, it was as if like God reached into my heart and he just pulled out all the straws and it felt like this marble just like dropped And in that moment, I knew like God had placed a call on my life and that he had called me into ministry, called me to be a pastor. And that put me on a road that's led to here. And for the most part, I can't think of a season where ministry wasn't what I wanted to do. And yet, as I look back on the years since then, I realized that uh, the majority of my time, uh, I've been in this mental state of just like, waiting for some uh, future place, just living in anticipation of some future state that I might finally reach. And I think in a lot of that time, I've been discontent. Even in times in ministry roles, just waiting for my sweet spot. In case you don't know, we all have a sweet spot. Uh, I went ahead and drew up a graph to explain what it is. Uh, But essentially, a sweet spot is the overlap between three things. God's call on your life, right? What God has told you to do. Uh, Your gifts, that is the things that you're good at. And then lastly, what you're passionate about. And what I tend to think is, man, if we can just reach that sweet spot, then we're gonna be satisfied. That sweet spot answers the question, what am I made to do? And this is what our students are basically asking about. This is what they're looking for. And I tell them, hey, don't worry. You'll find it by the time you're 25 and you'll be set. Everyone else does. (laughs) In reality, I think there's a good number of us here today that are asking the same question that our students are asking What am I made to do? And maybe you look at this graph and you look at your life and think, man, I'm only like one or two of those things, depending on the week, depending on how I feel and who you ask. Maybe you've been in a job for a few years and you've gotten pretty good at it. And for the most part, like you're content, you're excited about it, but you just wonder if God may be calling you to something more. Or maybe you have an idea in your head of what God may be calling you to, 
some role, some opportunity to serve. And you're like, but I just don't, I'm just not excited about that. Or I don't know if I would be very good at it. Maybe for a few of you here today, like you're in your sweet spot. You've sought the Lord. You're doing something you're passionate about and you're good at. And yet there's this gnawing feeling from time to time, like, man, is there something more, something different for me? In today's passage, we're gonna be looking at a character in the Bible, this guy who I think more than anyone else I can think of, uh, he operates in his sweet spot. We're gonna see that God has a very specific call for Jehu's life. Jehu is really good at what God's called him to do. And what's more is he's passionate about it. But ultimately, what we're gonna see is that being in the sweet spot isn't enough. Because though Jehu was an instrument for God, he ultimately missed out on something more important, which is intimacy with God. And my hope for us this morning is that we can look at this text and we can look at our lives and we can start asking a different question rather than what am I made to do? So you can open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. Actually, hey, you can bring up that, uh, that breakdown. Perfect. So a little bit of context before we dive in. Uh, the, the book of Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, it's tracking the development of two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of Israel in the north, made up of a majority of tribes of Israel. And then we have the, king, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And that's made up of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, and it's led by the descendants of King David. And if you were here last week, we were looking at the kingdom of Israel. And we were looking at two of their rulers, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And to quote Stan, uh, they were the worst. They were the absolute worst. In fact, that's, the Bible says this. They were the worst rulers in the history of Israel. We see that Jezebel introduces uh, false gods, these Baal worship, and makes it the state-sponsored religion there in Israel, uh, and that the, the kingdom follows them as well. And you'll also remember he talked about how at one point, like Ahab desired this vineyard and the guy wouldn't sell it to him. And so Jezebel's like, hey, why are you crying? Like, get up, like, I'm gonna make this happen. And she goes and has this owner killed and Ahab can then go claim the vineyard. And as he's heading there, uh, he's confronted by Elijah. And Elijah gives them a prophecy saying that God is going to bring an end to your line. God is going to wipe out your entire family. And what's worse is that you're not even gonna be buried, but the dogs are going to lick your bones clean. And I was talking to one of my buddies after church last week, and he said, hey, I noticed like we read the prophecy, but we didn't actually get to it. Like I'm assuming we're just gonna skip over that. And I said, no, actually that's next week. He was like, oh, yikes. Good luck to the guy who has to teach that. I said, yeah, I'm that guy. So we're gonna get to that in a moment, but just to break down here Jehu's story, uh, starting in 2 Kings 9, 1 through 15, we see his commission, where he is called by God to his purpose. Then we see in the next section his campaign as he carries out that purpose. 
And then finally, a conclusion where his life and his reign are summarized. So let's go ahead and start reading 2 Kings chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says this, The prophet Elisha called one of the sons of the prophets and said, Tuck your mantle under your belt, take this flask of oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Go in, get him away from his colleagues, and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Open the door and escape. Don't wait. So the young prophet went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, the army commanders were sitting there. So he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu asked, For which one of us? He answered, For you, commander. So Jehu got up and went into the house. The young prophet poured the oil on his head and says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to strike down the house of your master Ahab so that I may avenge the blood shed by the hand of Jezebel, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and of all the servants of the Lord. The whole house of Ahab will perish and I wipe out all of Ahab's males, both slave and free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. The dogs will eat Jezebel in the plot of land at Jezreel. No one will bury her. Then the young prophet opened the door and escaped. So in this passage, we see Jehu commissioned to carry out God's purposes against Ahab and against his house. And before we go any further, I just want to stop here uh, and take a minute to talk about what those purposes are and what they tell us about God. Uh, because I imagine that for some of you here today, when we read God calling for these violent and drastic actions, it just doesn't fit in with our idea of who God is, right? Like we think of his love and his mercy and his kindness and his gentleness. We're like, hey, I, something's not adding up here. Uh, others of us, we hear this and think, oh, like that's Old Testament God, keep reading, New Testament God mellows out. But I want to stop, and the first thing I want you to write down today is something that's true in every age, Old Testament, New Testament, and that's true today, and something that not only helps us better make sense of what's going on here, but it's something that we need to get straight. So our first point, God is fierce for the hearts of his children. God is fierce for the hearts of his children. A few months ago, my wife and I went on a vacation uh, to Yosemite in California, and it was absolutely spectacular. Uh, I'll never forget the moment as we're driving through the tunnel, entering the park, and you pop out, and you're right there at Tunnel View, and it is probably the most spectacular view on planet Earth. It's incredible. Uh, but as we drove down into the valley, uh, we noticed that it was starting to get like kind of hazy around us. And as we pulled further in, we started seeing all these fire trucks and like hundreds of firefighters walking around. And as we got to the ground level, you could see it was just thick with smoke. Uh, and there were little fires on either side of the path. And we saw a sign and it said, controlled burn. And at first we were kind of disappointed. It was like, man, no one wants to be at Yosemite on the day of a controlled burn. Uh, but what happens is, so over time, the uh, dead branches and the brush, they build up around the park. 
And if you don't take care of it, then a fire will break out and all of that dry uh, kindle will go up and you'll quickly have a wildfire that is just out of control. So every once in a while, they have a controlled burn where they get rid of all that stuff that's built up in order to prevent that from happening. Um, You know, and that's an important picture for us to understand, right? Because fires don't just like sit in one place. Fires don't just like, you know, that's enough burning for today, I'm good, right? No, fires consume, they keep consuming. And I think that picture is important because of how God describes himself in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter four. He says, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. See, where we're at right now in Israel's history, it fits into the pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. They don't take these words seriously. God becomes one of many gods that they give themselves to. And then another pattern we see in the Old Testament is that generally, wherever the king's heart is pointed, the people will follow. So in general, when you have a good king who seeks the Lord and humbles themselves, the people will follow in their example. When you have a king or a queen who are uh, rebelling against God, serving idols and practicing violence, Right? The people follow that. And that's exactly what's happened at this point for Israel. And what's worse is that this is the northern kingdom and this wickedness is actually seeping into Judah in the south because Judah's king, Ahaziah, has married into Ahab's family. And so it's not like uh, in this text, God goes from being a loving God to suddenly being a wrathful God. Rather, God's fierce love manifests. And when it does, you're either a tool or you're a target. And Jehu is the tool that God chooses to confront and consume those who are drawing his children away from him. And so I just want to take a moment and ask, do we take God's fierce love seriously? Do we recognize him for what he is? A consuming fire that demands all of our being. I think this is what Matthew is getting at when he quotes John the Baptist. He says, hey, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We are submerged into the consuming fire that is God. Do we take that seriously? Or do we treat God like a controlled burn? Something to be managed, right? Like when the sin builds up and a layer in our hearts, and we're like, I just need to get rid of that, right? Before things get out of hand. Is that how we treat God? I mean, look at the links that God goes to when it comes to his people's hearts. And in case we're tempted to thinking that this is just an Old Testament thing, I would encourage you to read Revelations 2 and 3 today. 
this isn't crazy apocalyptic revelation quite yet. This is the letters that John writes to the church. These are Jesus's words. And in it, Jesus says, I am the one whose eyes blaze like fire. And there's a sword that comes from my mouth. And in these two churches in particular, there are leaders who are drawing God's people's hearts away from him. And Jesus doesn't mix words here. He says, I'm gonna come and oppose you. I'm gonna come fight against you with the sword of my mouth. I'm gonna strike them down because of their refusal to repent. God is a consuming fire. His heart is fierce for the hearts of his children. As we continue on in the passage and get into Jehu's campaign, uh, we're gonna see his skill and his passion for the work that he's been called to. Uh, But we're also gonna be seeing clues that Jehu's commitment is mixed. Uh, Even as he carries out God's purposes, uh, we begin to see clues that he's perhaps more committed to something else. Uh, So it's a lot of text in here. Uh, We're not gonna read the full passage, uh, but I'm gonna read a bit and then we'll summarize a bit and then we'll circle back and point out what I believe is a pattern in Jehu's actions. So starting in verse 16. Jehu got into his chariot and went to Jezreel since Joram was laid up there and King Ahaziah of Judah had gone down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel. He saw Jehu's mob approaching and shouted, I see a mob. Joram responded, Choose a rider and send him to meet them and ask him, do you come in peace? So a horseman went to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king asks, do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. This happens again with another rider. And then finally, King Joram, that's Ahab's son, and King Ahaziah, they come out to confront him and he strikes them down. So... Uh, King Joram, King Ahaziah down. Then Jehu heads into Jezreel where Jezebel is staying. Let's go to verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it. So she painted her eyes, fixed her hair, and looked down from the window. Verse 32. He looked up toward the window and said, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. So we got Ahab, Joram, Ahaziah, Jezebel down. Uh, Let's head to chapter 10. Uh, Here's where we see Jehu's gifts uh, really kicking in. He's a master strategist. Chapter 10, verse one. Since Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, these would be uh, kings in waiting or princes, right? 70 sons in Samaria. Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's sons, saying, Your master's sons are with you. You have chariots, horses, a fortified city, and weaponry. So when this letter arrives, select the most qualified of your master's sons, set them on your master or your father's throne, and fight for your master's house. However, they were terrified and reasoned, look, two kings couldn't stand against him. How can we? So the overseer of the palace, the overseer of the city, the elders and the guardians sent a message to Jehu, We are your servants. We will do whatever you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever you think is right. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, if you were on my side and if you will obey me, bring me the heads of your master's sons at this time tomorrow 
at Jezreel. And the leaders, they carry out his commands. And then Jehu goes to finish the job. There are a few remaining relatives of Ahab. And on his way, he runs into a prophet of the Lord named Jehonadab. Let's look at verse 15. When he left there, he found Jehonadab, son of Rechab, coming to meet him. He greeted him and then asked him, is your heart one with mine? It is, Jehonadab replied. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and Jehu pulled him up into his chariot with him. Then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he let him ride with him in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained from the house of Ahab in Samaria until he had annihilated his house according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Then to quickly summarize the last bit, uh, so Jehu doesn't stop there. He actually takes one step further and he decides he's gonna eliminate all the worshipers of Baal. Keeping in mind, this is the state-sponsored religion under Jezebel. So this would have been some of her biggest supporters. And what he does is really clever. He calls all the worshipers of Baal to a big worship rally there in the city. They come in. Uh, he says, hey, make sure to kick out anyone who's a worshiper of the Lord. And they do. But what, he doesn't, what they don't realize is that he has guards stationed around the building. And at his command, they come in and they wipe out all the followers of Baal. The thing I want to notice and point out is that throughout his campaign, like we see Jehu's skill, we see his zeal, we see God's call, and yet maybe you noticed how at every step of the way, Jehu demanded something from others. He said, fall in behind me. Who's on my side? Is your heart one with mine. And I think that the writer of 2 Kings includes these passages to clue us in on what Jehu's actual priority was. Rather than following God, it's building up his side. It's the second thing I want you to write down. We either commit to our following God or commit to our own following. We either commit to our following God or we commit to our own following. And here's what I mean by that. You probably don't need me to tell you that it seems like right now there are more clearly defined and clearly divided sides than ever before. And I'm not talking about out there in the world, although that's certainly true. Like I'm talking about in the church, I'm talking about even here at Bayou City Fellowship. And the thing is, like, there are so many categories with which we could divide ourselves and the sides that we could take. And this isn't entirely unique to 2021. In fact, as we see Paul writing in the first century to the church in Corinth, it becomes immediately obvious that this is a church community uh, defined by sides. They were taking sides on which leader to follow. They were taking sides on theological issues and moral issues on how to live out their faith. They were taking sides on spiritual gifts, how they should be used, uh, how church should function in a worship gathering. Uh, it was getting so bad that these Christians could actually worship together on a Sunday morning, and then on Monday, they'd be dragging each other to court to sue over some legal dispute in front of non-believers. And obviously, like Paul looks at that and says, hey, this is ruining your Christian witness. 
This is ruining your witness to the world. I mean, the unity that God's people ought to have, it should be otherworldly, inexplicable, apart from Christ. And yet, I think there's an even bigger issue and one that matters to each of us. In chapter two, Paul, of 1 Corinthians chapter two, Paul talks about spiritual things that the natural mind can't understand because they are discerned spiritually. And he immediately follows that up by going into chapter three, saying, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling, these divisions among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Listen to what Paul is saying. He says, our brains are wonderful. They're beautifully designed by God. And yet, there are spiritual realities that they are simply incompatible with. In the same way that you can't get an old tape cassette player to connect to your Wi-Fi. It's just not made for that. And he says that it's these divisions among you, these sides that you've taken, that are the biggest indicator that you are being hindered from truly knowing and experiencing what only our spirits can discern. We can still go to Bible studies. We can still go to worship. We can still hear sermons. But the root of our faith is spiritual. Things like intimacy with God or experiencing his presence. These are things we can't afford to miss out on. So if we want to see our spirits grow in these areas, we have to become more committed to following Jesus than we are committed to our side. Chances are you're sitting in the room with someone right now that you fundamentally disagree with. Maybe you haven't had a shouting match, uh, but you've seen their Facebook posts, right? Or you've heard them give their hot take on a situation. And immediately in that moment, it clicked and you realize, oh, they're on that side. To where now when you see them or when someone mentions them, chances are like that's where you go immediately. That's what you think of when it comes to them. Here's what I want to challenge you in. And also, side note, uh, this only works if we're all bought in, but I think the stakes are high enough that if you're not, then there's probably a church that is a really good fit for you out there. In fact, there's probably a church that is just all your side. But if we wanna be here, here's what I would would encourage you to do. Get together with that person, perhaps a few others, Say clearly that you're not here to argue or share your perspectives or even to discuss peacefully because how often does that work? You're here to seek repentance together, pray together, ask Jesus for his mercy to make pursuing him together the highest thing. I mean, imagine what it would look like to our radically polarized world if they could look in here They could see people on opposite sides of the spectrum bowed before the Lord, heads together, saying, Lord, 
have mercy on us for giving our allegiance to something less than you. We surrender everything, center our hearts to know you and follow you. We're not looking for you to prove us right, but to draw us near to your presence. Align our hearts in you, Lord Jesus. Give us one spirit. The incredible, inexplicable. Are we gonna suddenly agree on everything? No. But I think we'll find that our commitment to our sides will shrink when our commitment to Jesus and our intimacy with him takes its rightful place. Jehu was more committed to his side than to the one who called him. And he missed out on fellowship with God. That's gonna be something that becomes even more clear as we head into this final section and we reach the conclusion starting in verse 28. Let's read it. Jehu eliminated Baal worship from Israel, but he did not turn away from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, worshiping the gold calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Nevertheless, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, four generations of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel. Yet, Jehu was not careful to follow the instruction of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins that Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. You know, it's interesting as we read this summary is that when we compare it to other places in history, we see that kings are highly concerned with how their life will be summarized with the narrative that's gonna be told about them, right? If you go to Egypt and you look at the, the tombs of great leaders and pharaohs, you see all these carvings into the stone telling the story of their life and their rule, their power, their wealth, their victories. They wanted to write the story that will be remembered. But for Jehu and for all the kings in the Old Testament, they didn't get to write their story their life was summarized by someone else. And that brings us back to where we started. Jehu knew what he was made to do and he did it. But the summary of Jehu's life shows that despite his accomplishments for God, he failed to give himself to God. The terrible warning of Jehu's life, as G. Campbell Morgan writes, is that it is possible to be an instrument in the hand of God and yet never be in fellowship with him. Or as Charles Spurgeon says, he was merely a hired servant, but a child of God, he never was. Here's our last point for today. God calls us to his person, not just his purposes. God calls us to his person, not just his purposes. And if there's one thing I want you to hear this morning, to have burned into your heart, it's this. And here's why, church. Because like Jehu, your life is going to be summarized. And also like Jehu, we don't get to write it. Many are going to try. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 7. Listen to these words. 
many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and in your name perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. I got to teach on this text earlier this year, and I keep coming back to it because I can't think of a more sobering passage that there will be people, many, according to Jesus, which includes churchgoers, includes leaders, includes pastors, it includes missionaries, many who spend their lives doing what they believed God had called them to do. They can be effective, they can be passionate. Gosh, but what let this weigh in, their summary will be, I never knew you. So maybe the only question that matters, do you really know Jesus? And can you hear David's words in Psalm 27, where he's just like, God, there's only one thing I want. Only one thing that my heart desires, just to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze on your beauty. Like, do we know what's that, what that's like? Have we experienced moments where we can just be still and know that God is and that he's near? I mean, for me, it wasn't that long ago that I could be sitting where you're sitting and be like, what is this guy talking about? And I knew I was saved. But I'd hear like David's words in Psalm 27, or I'd hear other believers talk about their relationship with God. I don't know, I felt like, God, am, am I missing something? Started praying God like, what is it? What's holding me back? I've mentioned already a few of the things that could hold us back, whether it's withholding our hearts from the God who is a consuming fire, being more committed to our side. But I think there's one more barrier that I want to mention this morning, and that is shame. We see this in the prodigal son. If you remember the story, he's heading home after fleeing and rebelling against his identity, and he's practicing his speech Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just make me a hired servant. Right? Sin, shame has a way of deceiving us into thinking, hey, I'm not worthy to be in intimate relationship with God. But God, just like tell me some things to do. Just make me a servant. There's a huge difference between a servant out of shame and a servant out of humility. God doesn't call us to be a servant out of shame. And what we need to know is that Jesus came and he took on our shame and it was crucified to the cross. Not so that we could become servants out of shame, so that we could become sons and daughters of the living God. Maybe some of you are there this morning in that shame that keeps you distant from the one who calls you. Don't settle for aligning with God's purposes 
when God is calling you to his person. So to close out this morning, perhaps what we need is a new sweet spot. Uh, Paul makes this shift. He describes it in the letter letter to the Philippians. You can turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And he tells us that, you know, his sweet spot before had been doing what he believed God had called him to do, to wipe out this new heretical branch of Christianity that was spreading. He was really good at it, and he was passionate about it. But something happened in Paul's life that changed everything. Why? What happened? He met the person of Jesus. You know, and we can look at all that Paul accomplished. We can look at his brilliance and his passion for the church. And we could be fooled into thinking that Paul's goal was to share his faith or to plant churches or to teach. And all those things are good things. But listen to what Paul says here in Philippians 3, verse 10. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. It's to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection, and to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Why? Verse 12, I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. This is the sweet spot we are called to aim our lives at. Knowing Christ, an intimate experience, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus suffered because he emptied himself and laid down his whole being. He experienced the resurrection and the power that Uh, we experience that same power through the Spirit who fills our inner being, as Paul writes in Romans. The same Spirit that gave life to Jesus gives life to our mortal bodies. So starting today, what I need, what I believe you need, what I think Bayou City Fellowship needs is to start asking a new question. Not what am I made to do? but rather, who am I made to know? So here's where we can start. Uh, Instead of having our prayer team come forward today, uh, we just want to open up a space here in front uh, as the band comes back up. We want to invite you to take a moment and come and meet with the Lord. Come before him and say, God, I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want to give my heart to you and just be with him. And if you aren't coming forward, we want to give you a role as well. And that is where you are. Um, Maybe you know someone who comes up or someone who's sitting near you. But if you would just extend a hand and pray over that meeting place, 
in what's being said there, that God would have his way. And we're also gonna ask our uh, pastoral team and some of our prayer team members uh, to be here as well and to pray over you. But we just wanna have this time to come before the Lord, to meet with him. So as the music plays, after I finish praying, pray with me. Father, you're here with us today. God, you're jealous for our hearts. Lord, we give to you what is rightfully yours, striving to take hold of Christ because he has taken hold of us. It's in his name we pray.